Hey, so good to be with you guys. Good morning. Those of you guys who, uh, who walked in this morning and thought, why is that strange person sitting in my seat? They're from Saturday night. So hopefully you can be nice to them and welcome them to Sunday morning. Uh, we are, I mean, in addition to not only having them sitting, strangers sitting in your seat, we have pancake breakfast today. So hopefully you, got, you came hungry and are ready for that as well. Um, but it is really, really good to be with you. I, I am um, really excited to talk to you today. I'm excited about what God's doing in this series it was so fun to be at our, our Rooted celebration uh, on Friday. And just, you know, I, I know that we kind of, we mentioned the word Rooted a bunch. And it is really the sort of gateway into our, our life group community. And it really is a, uh, kind of captures the heart, the DNA of our church. And being able to be there and, uh, you know, to be able to baptize some people and to be a part of that whole, that whole journey for some people, which I know is so, has so many layers. Everybody's story is so layered. And it's so fun to be able to, to see that culminate in that, in that night. But uh, it's just the beginning. Uh, Rooted is just the beginning of what we do here. It is um, just very, I mean, seriously, it's just getting stuff started as we continue to talk about life and community and seeing the community changed outside these walls. And as we continue to be the people that God's called us to be who welcome new people who are looking and searching for stuff uh, and, and answers to questions. So very good to be with you guys. We're in our series called The Bible. I know it's not the most clever title, but it is the title that was given to the miniseries, which had about 100 million people watch it. Some of you watched it. We also, I realized, I think we still, I don't know, I know we sold out the first week, but for those of you who didn't watch it, I think we have the DVDs in our book shelf out there. And so you can walk out there and, and you know, if you want to pick it up and see what we're looking at, you can do that as well. But week one, we talked about the idea of creation, that among all the things that creation tells us, Foremost among them, as we looked at the creation narrative from the beginning of Genesis, foremost among the things that, that we're told in creation is that God is the one who arranges and places all things in their right order, and that the right order of all creation is that it faces toward him. And then we looked uh, last week at, at Father's Day at probably one of the most uh, difficult, challenging, bizarre Father's Day stories of all time, which is the, the story of Abraham and Isaac. And we looked at how there is this, this, there is only all of us place things, uh, our own children, our own families, the things entrusted to us on an altar. And the only altar, the only God that can provide is God himself, but there's no other altar that can provide. And so um, it has been a, a very, very cool series. People have been talking, and we, just as, I've talked to some of the other guys at our other campuses uh, about what's going on. People are excited about this. It's been very, very cool. So let's do this. Let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll um, get into today's message. Jesus, we um, are... Um, we, are, we are grateful to you. Father, it's our prayer that every day we would increase in our gratitude toward you. That one of the things that would mark us is that we are people who uh, believe in your abundance. That we are not victims of uh, scarcity, but that God, your abundant love and your abundant provision would be known to us and through us. Jesus, as we gather today, as we look at your word, the Bible... Some of us are in a place where we find ourselves trapped, done in, exhausted, overwhelmed. And we got dressed up and we, um, we put everything together and showed up today expecting in some way that no one would ask us and that nothing would get to us, that we could continue to sort of act as though everything's fine. And so, Father, today we just pray that this might be a safe enough place for you to do the dangerous work of unwinding some of that stuff. Father, others of us are, um, are in that place of great comfort, even a, a sense of self-sufficiency. And Father, would you remind us that it is you who gives to us power and it is you who sustains and it is not us. So Jesus, and just for a moment, would you speak to us in the still, quiet, 
that we might hear your voice, that you might remind us of your love, your nearness, and of your provision. Father, it is in your name that releases people from captivity that we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to bounce around a little bit in the Bible. If you have your Bible, you can open it up. We're going to be first in Genesis 41, and then we'll be in Exodus for a lot of it as well. But I want you to just, if you don't have a Bible, or you don't know, you have a Bible, but you're not sure how to navigate it or whatever, we'll have all that stuff on the screen. You have an outline that you got in your bulletin. But, um, uh, as you're doing that, I was, I was thinking <clears throat> this, this, this past week, as my kids got out of school, we spent a lot of time at uh, the, like our neighborhood pools. And so that's like the first thing my kids want to do. It's probably the only thing that we'd ever have to do is go to a pool. When we go to Texas in a couple, in a couple weeks, I, um, which we go to Texas in July, is, it's just like, why don't you ask someone to punch you in the face? It's just like, <laughs> it's so miserable. So the only thing you can do is you can eat and you can swim, and that's all that there is. And so my in-laws have a, a pool in their backyard, and my kids swim the entire time. So pool is like a huge hit. But I'm, I'm watching my, my youngest, who is, he'll be five in September, I'm watching him swim. And he's, uh, my, my two oldest are, you know, they're, they're fine. They swim all the time, and they're, they're great. But my, my four-year-old, he's not, he's in that place where he can totally swim. I mean, he swims like a fish as long as he can touch the bottom of the, the pool, and the second you put him in deeper water, he just forgets everything. You know what I'm talking about? So we're in the jacuzzi yesterday, and he is just swimming all around, holding his breath, taking a breath, looking around. I'm like, you got it. Let's go in the deep end. No. And I've made the mistake being the, the sort of, I could, let me just show you what's inside of you, son. You could do this as a dad. You know, one of those moments where I'm like, this is a total Frosted Flakes commercial. Tony the Tiger is going to come out and just slap me a high five after I do this. But I'm like, let me hold you. And he's wiggling in pain, you know, like, God, God. And I put him in the, in the water. I'm like, buddy, just swim. Big arms. Kick your feet. Be fine. And I put him in the, as soon as I put him in the water, it is total panic. Like, forgets everything. Sees, he's totally vertical. All he can think is the only thing I got to do is get oxygen. He's not thinking about swimming to the side of the pool. That goes out the window. Now, if I do exactly the same thing in, a, in like a shallower end of the pool, he's like, I got this. And he swims away. But there's a point in which he thinks to himself, in the deep water, I'm stuck. I got, no, I got only what I know how to do. And even though there is another way, I resort only to what I know how to do. And so I watch him sink. And I got to rescue him. He looks at me like, and he's like choking and spitting and crying. And how, he looks at you like, he looks at me like, how dare you? You know, like that face of, how dare you do this to me? And then he's like putting his arms around me and wants to be, it's just like, you can tell the conflict within him. Now, There is a way, I think when you look at the Bible, when you look at the Bible, it is a story of people constantly getting themselves stuck and in a sort of tragic comic way, trying to use their own means to get themselves unstuck. And yet the Bible is a story in which God says, no, 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 the only way you're going to get unstuck is if I do it, if you use the way I give to you. That's the story of the Bible. If you had to sum it up, you could look at this and just say, people get trapped. They rely on their own means to get themselves out of a situation in which they're stuck. They get themselves further stuck, and they go, okay, we got nothing else. God, you have to rescue us. That is the story. And foremost among those stories is the Israelite captivity in Egypt. It is the dominant story. It is the one in which, if you were to look back from the cover to cover of the Bible, the one that's referenced the most is this idea of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. 
Now, just a little bit of backstory. There's 400 years of captivity. Uh, they're longing for help, and they're asking the question, where's God? So here's what it says in Exodus chapter 1. This is what you might, you know, sort of know. Exodus 1.12 says this, The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Clearly, the repeated pattern here of working them ruthlessly is an important one to hold on to. But I want to do this. For so many people, if you grew up in the church, if you grew up comfortable with some level of familiarity with the Bible, you're aware that the Israelites are captive in Egypt. You kind of know that already. But I want you to see this. There is something, I want to back up a little bit, because this is sort of not really understood. I mean, a lot of times we don't talk about how they ended up that way or why they're there. All we know is that the Israelites were in captivity. But I want to back up even further, because I think it gives us a sense about how people get stuck. And it gives us a sense about how God intends to get us unstuck. So I want to back up a little bit. There's a power greater than the Israelites that is holding them captive. It's in Genesis chapter 41. It's where we kind of pick up our story. There's a guy in the, in the book of Genesis, probably the, he's got the more chapters about him than anybody else, a guy named Joseph. And Joseph is a guy who is, uh, he's taken captive and he's got this gift for being able to interpret dreams. Pharaoh, the Egyptian Pharaoh, has a dream. No one can figure out what it means. And he goes to get Joseph through a lot of different circumstances. I'm going to speed that up through a lot of different circumstances, ends up in front of the Pharaoh saying, I think this is what your dream means. And ultimately what he says is you're going to have seven years of plenty. There's going to be all kinds of resources that we're all about here. And there's going to be seven years of famine. And then the Pharaoh says, what do you think I should do? And so here's what Joseph says. This is Genesis 41, verse 33. starts this. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land in Egypt, a land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Meaning, Joseph's saying, you got to find a guy to oversee the taking of 20% of the resources from everybody there so that we can hold it so that when the famine happens, we can feed everybody. Now, you have to understand, too, what I'm going to do here, too, is Joseph is a patriarch of the church. He's a widely known, widely celebrated figure in the Bible. And yet there's this thing that gets missed about him, which we're going to uncover here in a second. Uh, let's see, continue on, verse 35. They should collect all the food of, uh, food of these good years that are coming and store the grain up under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. It's a really practical government decision. There's going to be a famine. Let's take in a bunch of the food now so that when there is the famine, everybody will be okay. Brilliant decision. Really smart. The policy that's sort of put in place here is one in which everybody will be provided for should they be frugal now with what they've got. Seems incredibly smart. But he skipped forward a little bit to chapter 47, verse 13. Look what it says. This is during the famine. Now, there was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. Now listen to this. Initially, all of the grain is taken and is intended to be used during the famine. And now what's happening is Joseph is taking payments on food people have already put for themselves away. 
In other words, we'll be the government, we'll hold on to your food for you, and then when we, when we need to disperse it, we will. Only now what's happening is the people have to come to the government and pay for the food. People came for grain, only now they have to buy it. Verse, continuing on, verse 16, we'll jump around a little bit. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. When that year, skipping forward to verse 18. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone, our livestock belongs to you. There is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. So Joseph, verse, 21, verse 20, So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. What you have here is a total consolidation of all the resources and power in the ancient world to one person, Pharaoh and his commissioned person, Joseph, who's overseeing all of it. The people have trusted Joseph and this government he represents to hold their resources so that in a time of need, they could, they could disperse it safely and freely. And now these people can't afford to buy the things that they've given to the government. So they have to sell their, land, their livestock, their land, and ultimately themselves. Every single person in Egypt and all the land was owned by Pharaoh. Every ounce of wealth, every single thing in the land was owned by Pharaoh and it was held, it was organized by this guy Joseph who, by the way, rescues his own people by placing them in a land called Goshen and it's a pretty fertile land and they get to live how they want and so they multiply and are happy and everybody says, isn't that great? Only what's happening here is this. Joseph has utilized all of the powers of his own office to consolidate the power for himself, to gain more notoriety for himself, and to protect a favorite people. And what ends up happening is that the everybody else who's now been enslaved starts to think maybe we're not such huge fans of those Israelites. You see, in this consolidation of power, there is a belief that there is a, how should you say this? There's a, it's predicated on the belief of scarcity, not abundance. There isn't going to be enough. If I can take all the food, all the resources, all the power and make it my own, then I can protect myself and my people. Only what happens is the people who are, not, who are enslaved begin to start questioning that decision. So you fast forward a couple hundred years. Here's what it says in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Joseph, by the way, is Abraham's great-great-grandson. Or, sorry, great-grandson. To whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Verse 9, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Now listen. Here's what the Egyptian, new Egyptian Pharaoh says is, I don't know who Joseph is, but I can't figure out why you guys get all this special privilege. We need to do something about that right now. 
and he enlists these people and forces them into slavery. You can see the pattern here. It's no different than what Joseph had done. And what we're going to do is we're going to use these people to build for us storehouses. In other words, there is a sweeping sense that there isn't going to be enough stuff in the world, so we got to build cities to hold all of the stuff for the Pharaoh. You have a belief here in scarcity, not in abundance. There isn't going to be enough. If we don't consolidate all of it, if we don't take all of it, if we don't hoard all of it, it's going to go away. And so you see the system of power, the system of scarcity running rampant. And you see the people now who once were living free in the best land in Egypt are now being turned against because way, way, way back when, there's a guy who enslaved all of Egypt and favored his own people. The people now for 400 years start crying out, God, where are you? In fact, what they're saying is, God, we needed you and you're not here. And in the ancient Near East, here's the way this works. When someone says, God, where are you? Presumably they're vulnerable to attack. If our God is with us and he's the most powerful God, no other army, no other people, nothing else will happen to us because he's with us. And if we're trapped, if we're in slavery in some situation or another, that means God is not among us. And so they're crying out. And the Bible doesn't really answer why. that they're, He's not answering them. But at this point, they, he starts, they start crying out, God, we need you. We need to know where you are. Because if you were here, this wouldn't be happening to us. And he starts hearing his people. And he begins to point to this person. Of, he begins to point out, God raises up this person, Moses and Aaron, to begin to talk, to confront the very power that holds his people, a guy named Pharaoh. And so if you wanted to read in your Bible, Exodus 7 through 12, you could read all this. But Moses confronts the Pharaoh. And he has what are, in these 7 through 12 are all of what are called the 10 plagues. Maybe you've heard of this before. But here's what happens. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, you got our people enslaved. We can't have that anymore. And Pharaoh over and over again says, well, let me think about it. No, 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 you can't, you can't do that. And so basically he requires a little convincing. And we have to know about Pharaoh is this. There are, there are ten plagues that we see represented in the Bible. I'm going to talk about nine, then I'll talk about the tenth separately. But there are nine plagues that, are repre- that all represent Egyptian deities. They're all representative of Egyptian deities. And the foremost among those deities is the Pharaoh himself. And the Pharaoh holds all of the universe in balance with something called ma'at. Meaning, all of everything, all the other gods are sort of kept in balance by him because he's the most powerful. So when you see that there are, the Nile turns to blood, or that the, there's a, a swarm of frogs, or gnats, or flies, or that li- livestock are dying, or boils break out on people, or hail kills all these crops, or locusts finish off the rest of the crops, or that there's darkness, these are all representative of Egyptian gods. And the Pharaoh is the one who's supposed to keep those things in balance for his people. What you're seeing now is, what would have been very clear to the very first readers is, the balance of power is shifting. Pharaoh, who's supposed to hold everything all together, is being challenged by someone with greater power than he. And so throughout this conversation that Moses has with Pharaoh, he keeps saying, 
do you want to let my people go? And Pharaoh keeps going, I, I think I will. No, I won't. Just kidding. I don't want to do that. I want to keep them. Then he keeps kind of escalating the level of punishment for those people. And the ultimate power of the Pharaoh is being upended. Now, here's where we have to start wrestling with this a little bit. The Pharaoh represents all of the known power in the ancient world. He holds all of it together. Now, when you and I look at our lives, we don't think to ourselves about one in particular sort of holding all together force. We might think about God in a different sense, but when we talk about like the way the world functions, we tend to, let me just give you a sense of how this is still prevalent. In 2008, the thing that holds our entire world together fell apart. When our economy fell apart, everything started to fall apart for people all of a sudden. People began to question everything about who they were because there was this one power that held all things together, that held everything in balance, and when all of a sudden the housing market crashed and so on and so forth, everybody started to go, there is, what do we do? We're in total panic. It's a free fall. And when it works, when that power works, there's harmony and happiness, and when it doesn't, everybody starts to wonder, oh my gosh, what do we do? The same thing's happening here. Pharaoh's power to hold everything together is being challenged and questioned. And so there's a tenth plague. And this is the sort of final sweep, the coup de grace. This is the ultimate move in which God keeps saying, I want these people to go, and you keep wanting to hold on to them, Pharaoh, so here's the last one we're going to deal with, and it's going to be painful. The tenth plague is this. This is Exodus 11, 4 through 5. It says this. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, About midnight I'll go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn, firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of a female slave who's at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Whoa. God says, you're still not listening to me, Pharaoh. You do not have everything to behold. You don't get the right to hold everything together. These people need to be free, and you're holding on to them. So here's what we're going to do, because you don't seem to get it. Every, the firstborn in every household will die. Now, the firstborn of the Pharaoh, firstborn son of the Pharaoh, also believed to be divine. If the Pharaoh and his own son don't live, then everything in this particular world is upended. Of course, this sort of massive threat is ignored by the Pharaoh. And here's what God, does, God says to his own people. And some of you have heard this story before. God instructs his own people on how his own anger would sort of be dealt with or how his own, this punishment would be dealt with for his own people. It's called the Passover. Here's what he says. It's in Exodus chapter 12. It says this. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care of the lamb, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when, some of, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Now, we hear this and go, <laughs> isn't there another way? That, can they just put like a sock on the door? Or, you know, can they just, you know, like open the mailbox, put the mail flag up? Or is there something? All of a sudden we have, now remember, this is, this is bizarre. Like, remember, when we're talking about the Bible, the Bible is for us, but it is not to us. So there's going to be imagery in there that we're like, wait a second. 
That does not make any sense to us because it's not to you, it's for you. Let me explain what that means. When anytime you have language where, a, where you have a slaughter of an animal in the ancient world, you don't have people going, that is just senseless violence, which we think this is, if you, you got caught killing a lamb in your yard, I mean, you go to jail. Oh, it's no big deal. I'm just killing his lamb for a little sacrifice and we're going to put it on the door frame. Don't worry, I'm just going to sprinkle some of the blood. That doesn't, you know, like, we don't get, that doesn't, you know, doesn't pass here. So here's what you have to understand. Whenever you see the language of a blood sacrifice, it's always in the context of a covenant. Now, this isn't specifically a covenant, but it is in the context of a covenant. And this is like this. People would make covenants in the ancient world. Covenants are a two-party agreement. And the way that they would seal a covenant is that two people, the way that this generally work is that people would cut an animal in half. There's this gross, gruesome picture, right? Blood everywhere. It's as, gro- it's as gruesome as you'd imagine it. And people would walk standing in the middle of the blood pool, the animal parts there, and they would shake hands. They would have an agreement. And what they would say is, if I don't hold up to this end of the agreement, to my part of the agreement, might this exact same thing happen to me? In other words, both parties agree to each other and curse themselves at the same time. That's pretty commonplace. Our agreement with each other is so serious that it's, it's as if, if we weren't able to uphold it, we would die. That's a pretty common thing. So when you see this kind of blood sacrifice, now again, this isn't specifically a covenant, but this thing wouldn't have been totally bizarre for people. They would have gone, oh, okay, that makes sense. It's not like God's going around going, I can't remember where the Israelites are. Which one of them? I don't see any blood. Like, that's not how it's working. What this is saying is for the people to acknowledge that they belong to him. So that when God is looking to figure out who his people are, they know and he knows. It's a us, we're on the same page. Now this becomes a symbol of the covenant relationship between God and his people. This is what is called the Passover. Here's why. Verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. This is why, if you have you know, Jewish friends, they celebrate the Passover. It's to commemorate this moment. Now let me back up a little further again. The policy that makes anybody become a slave ultimately makes us all slaves. Any policy that makes people become slaves ultimately makes us all slaves. The way in which the power systems of the world are going to be upended isn't by us adopting the means and power systems of the world. Say it again. The way that the power systems of this world are going to be upended is not when we adopt the systems of power for ourselves. Those same means do not result in our freedom. They result in further captivity. The only way people get unstuck, the only way that they get rescued is when God himself undermines the powers over the whole world. You see, the ultimate slavery is the slavery of death. And God's intention is to rescue us from all 
forms of captivity. How do you get stuck? Now, there's obvious stuff some of us we've talked about before, we talk about a lot. There's some obvious things where we get stuck. Some of us trip up into addiction. We have habits or behaviors. We have old sort of secrets, lies we believe, shame we hold on to. Those are all things that have kept us captive, something that you might already be aware of. But there's other things, too. We live in a world that says that if someone takes something from you, that the best possible course of action is always retaliation to get back what you deserve. And even as someone who walks with Jesus, who is trying to figure out how to do that more intimately, I I watch it first in my own kids. I watch them retaliate with each other. (laughs) Anytime you put them in a hot van and tell them we're going for a drive, you're going to see some altercations break out. And you have the inevitable, she's hitting me, he started it, and the so on and so forth, tennis match of accusations and pinching and slapping and biting and hair pulling and whatever else that goes on with that. And I think, you can't, kids, you would be so much happier if you guys could just figure out how to not do that with each other. And yet, isn't that how I get into most arguments with my own wife? If you hadn't, I wouldn't. You know, for me, more than anything else, I'm someone who would bury things that have, like, bothered me, and I'll hold on to them just so a case. In fact, you know what it feels like? I'm storing up these things so that when there's a great famine, I can unleash them on my wife. Oh, that's funny. Let me just open the storehouse here and pull out a few things. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, You know, like, this is the way in which I do stuff. And that has not been the most successful way to navigate stuff. Maybe you can relate. That I have embraced a system, at least in a small part, of retaliation. This just, hey, you know, this is the way the world works, the way we do stuff around here. Well, you know what? Maybe that's not the way we ought to consider doing things. Maybe we're now, as soon as we're in the deep end of the pool, we're being released and we're just resorting to our old ways. Sometimes we create and perpetuate a system that continues to keep us captive. Now, one of the ways we do that is this. We tend to say, with good regularity, with great discipline, there are times in my life and areas of my life for which God gets to have his way in all of those things. They're the church world. It's the people, I, how I talked in the church universe when I talked to them. You know, I kind of, it's not like I'm crazy. It's not like I instantly have a southern accent and, hey, y'all, and praise the Lord. And it's not like that necessarily, but I definitely have a way. But when I get into the business world, or when I'm with my old friends, people that don't know this world, I'm easily, I can easily switch those things off. This is about business. This is about Jesus. Business, Jesus. And maybe when we're employing those kind of tactics, what we're saying is, I don't trust you, God, to be a part of this part of my life. I know how to do this. I know how to consolidate power and wealth around myself. Whatever that wealth or resources might be, relational clout, friendships, whatever it literally is, I can hold that for myself because business is business. Church is church stuff. 
if there's anything we learn from the Bible, which we'll see throughout the rest of the series, is that everything is spiritual. <laughs> there is no non-spiritual moment in which we say, this is my spiritual life and this is my unspiritual life, and never the two shall meet. Because when we employ that kind of thinking, this one says scarcity, there isn't going to be enough, I have to hoard it and make storehouses of it. We wind up keeping ourselves captive and creating captivity. We're in need of getting unstuck. This is the God who does this. What's hard for us to believe is he's actually got a way to live and to be where we trust him that he does stuff that may seem counterintuitive, but that is the best way. In fact, the way God identifies himself, this is a couple chapters later, the, the Israelites have wandered through the desert after the Passover. The Pharaoh actually says the craziest thing. He, tells her, he, says, he says to Moses, in effect, five times, go, 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 go. Like, go, 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 leave, low, go. You know, like, take everything and go. And then at the end of that sentence, is the end of chapter 12, he says, go, and in the most humiliating moment, he says, and bless me. The power systems have been broken, and now he says, Pharaoh says, okay, Moses, you walk out, but I need you to bless me. There could not have been a more humble thing for the God who sustains all things in the universe, keeping them balanced, to say, I need your God to bless me. Please stop these curses. Please stop these plagues. And Moses walked out. Now, when they get, the, the, the big, when they get the, when Moses gets to Mount Sinai and there's the fireworks and lightning show of God that shows up there and there is, God gives to Moses the Torah and the Ten Commandments, I want you to see the way in which he had, God identifies himself as part of the Ten Commandments. This is what it says in Exodus 20. Notice the way God identifies. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now leave this up on the screen. Now, when you look at this, if you grew up in the church, you would say, oh, yeah, the first commandment, that's verse 3. In the Hebrew rendering of the Bible, that's the first commandment, verses 2 and 3. Now, the first one has no commandment. There's no, com there's no imperative there. There's no restrictions. The way that the Hebrew people talk, the way that they would read this, the way the Israelites would have understood this, the way the Jews understand this today would be to say this. These are not just the Ten Commandments. These are the Ten Words or the Ten Sayings. And if you don't understand verse 2, the rest of them do not make sense. Look how God self-identifies. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. If we don't catch anything else, we got to understand, God is a God who brings people out of captivity and into freedom. And then he gives them the way in which to live. He doesn't start with, if you do this, then I will be the God who brings you out of captivity. It starts with, I'm the God who brought you out of captivity in Egypt, out of slavery, and into freedom. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't trust the Pharaoh to hold everything else together. Don't, hold, don't trust the economy to hold everything else together. Don't... I'm the one who sets captives free, and you've got to trust me. Here's how to live as a free person. Commandments. We live in a world where people are taught to neatly package and hide away their pain 
I was talking uh, at the Rooted celebration of, uh, of to our, all of the Rooted graduates from all the campuses. And I'm looking there and I'm going, these people have understood something. All of you who have been through our Rooted experience understand this. That you understand something about community and life together. That the world is going, I'm so desperate for a way to connect with people that's meaningful and vulnerable and safe. I've been hold- I talked to one person who said, I've been holding on to some secrets that I don't tell anybody. And she said, on the second night of Rooted, I told everybody everything. And, I, and she, she's like, I've never done that before. And I felt so free. That we live in a world that says if you can hide it, package it, cover it up, if you can buy it, if you can, if you can hold it, if you can manage it, if there's a way in which you can some way cover it up with some kind of other therapy other than actually sort of revealing and doing the hard work of being set free from it, then you should probably do that. And that leads us where all slavery ultimately leads us to death. Captivity, loneliness, isolation. And to look at the huge, massive arc of the Bible from the very beginning to the very end, you see then that God is still at work thousands of years later. It says this in 1 Peter 18 and 19, it says this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Stop right there. What's being said here is what, you will att- what we will attempt to do more often than not is attempt to find freedom by buying it in some way or another. But the way in which you were released from captivity, those who belong to Jesus, the way you released from captivity isn't because you purchased it. It isn't because money was spent. It's because something far more serious was spent. Verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now when they describe a lamb without blemish or defect, they're talking about the Passover lamb. Christ is for us, the whole world, the Passover lamb. The one that, we would, that would have been sacrificed, blood spilled, and blood spread on the doorpost such that God's death would pass over us. The ultimate freedom is from death itself. This is what God intends to do with himself for humanity. He doesn't want anybody to be caught in the systems and powers of this world trying to create their own freedom, trying to create their own stability. Instead, he says, let me release you from captivity. Let me free you from death. Would you do this for a moment? Would you close your eyes? I want to give you a moment to consider where it is in your life that you are stuck. And some of you might have the feeling of, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm stuck. Maybe you have the experience then of being one who is keeping a storehouse for a way to keep people stuck. Is it a bitterness? Is it a need to retaliate? Are you stuck in a life of addiction, of shame? Are you stuck in a life of regret? 
Have you tried every possible means you can think of to get out of it? And it seems to only keep you on the treadmill of the same exact scenario over and over and over again. Is there someone in your life that is enslaved by your bitterness? Is there someone to whom you need to say, I'm just, I'm, as hard as this is, I want to let go and forgive you? Is there someone for whom you need to say, I accept your forgiveness? Father, we're people who who genuinely, with everything that we've got, do not desire to be people who are stuck. We desire freedom from captivity. We desire a life that is full of the power of your own spirit in and through us. Father, it's our heart that we would be people who know freedom, who know the joy of what it is to to walk out from underneath the, the oppression of something else, some other power, whatever it might be. God, we acknowledge that everything is spiritual, that there is no separation of our business life or our personal life from our spiritual life, that they're all intertwined and that there is no separation. And so, God, we ask for your power that we might be unstuck. We confess those areas where we have caused our own place of being trapped. And we have tried our own means to get out. And so we call upon you and your power to release us. So, Father, as we sing, we sing as freed people. People who are learning how to live as freed people. And, Father, some of us will need to come forward and receive more prayer from our prayer team. All of, all, all of us will get an opportunity to sing and respond our own prayer set to music. So God, we ask that you would hear us and respond to us as we respond to you. That we might be made free because of your power, Lord. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. We stand together.